The PowerPoint slide background shows a student being required to write the same sentence over and over until the chalkboard is full. I assume he's in trouble, I guess. Uh, It's probably too small to read, but the sentence is, my opinion doesn't matter, biblical truth does matter, and we should all agree. French author Victor Hugo made famous the statement, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. I'm not a huge Shakespeare fan, but it's interesting that Shakespeare in all his writings and theatrical creations actually quoted from the Bible some 5,000 times. No book has ever been used more than the Bible, and no book has ever been misused more than the Bible. In part because people read the Bible and don't answer the critical question, what did God mean by what God said? What did God mean by what God said? Although God used human men to author the scriptures, thank you so much. God is the ultimate author of all scripture, so in reading a particular text, we need to first determine what did God mean in that text. And in order to do that, we need to use certain hermeneutical principles. We mentioned hermeneutics this past time. Hermeneutics is not a religious word per se. It could be applied to all forms of literature. Hermeneutics, in a generic sense, is the science of interpretation and is the basis and criterion used to interpret any piece of literature. Biblical hermeneutics, though, is more specific. Biblical hermeneutics is the science and it is an exact science of biblical interpretation. Reading scripture cannot benefit us unless we understand it. So in this message, we're going to focus on the first, just the first, of four basic hermeneutical principles. This message is going to be more academic in nature than a normal message, Uh, so we need to put on our thinking caps, and uh, we need to really focus on this. I know academic reminds us of school, and for some people that's a bad word, but we can do this. The first hermeneutical principle that is needed to understand Scripture is the literal principle. The literal principle. That means we should understand Scripture in a literal, normal sense. A literal, normal, at face value sense, unless there is a reason not to do that. I mentioned last time, some people want to know, what does this verse mean to me? What does this verse mean to me? That is not the question we should be asking. The question is, what does this verse mean if I weren't here? The reason is because a verse has to mean something apart from us. What does the verse mean on its own? The first rule to a correct understanding of a biblical text is this literal principle. That being said, there are instances where Scripture does use non-literal language. There are three basic forms of language used in Scripture. Literal language, and that is used more often than any other language form. Second is symbolic language. Sometimes Scripture uses symbols, as it does extensively in the book of Revelation. And third, there is figurative language. Figurative language uses figure of speech. I'm going to park here for some time and share five 
biblical figures of speech. Most of us were exposed to this material in high school English class, but uh, I'm certain that most of us have forgotten most of this. So number one is a simile. A simile. A simile is where one thing is compared to another thing as if it were that thing. A simile is where one thing is compared to another thing as if it were that thing. And that is done through using words such as like and ask. Like and ask. An example, Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus said this about the Pharisees. For you are like. Notice the word like. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outward, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Jesus compared the hypocritical nature of the Pharisees to tombs, actual tombs that were washed, cleaned, and attractive on the outside, but on the inside contained dead bones, defilement, and decay. Meaning those Pharisees had an attractive religious facade on the outside, but on the inside there was this hyper-pride, and selfish intentions. I might add, if a simile is expanded, it becomes a parable. The parables Jesus told are just extended similes. Second is a metaphor. A metaphor, a metaphor is the same as a simile, except that it does not contain the formal statement of resemblance. And notice, it doesn't use the words like and ask. So there's a, a, a a connection, a similarity, but not exactly the same. Luke 13, verse 32, Jesus made this comment about Herod Antipas. He said, go tell that fox. Through the use of this grammatical metaphor, Jesus was comparing Herod Antipas to the craftiness and shrewdness of a fox. I might add, if a metaphor is expanded, it becomes an allegory. Allegories are legitimate figures of speech, but allegorizing Scripture is a dangerous practice uh, that we're going to discuss next time. Third is a hyperbole. A hyperbole is a statement of exaggeration that is used to increase the emphasis of what is being said. And we use hyperboles all the time. For example, I'm as hungry as a horse. That is hyperbole. I'm not literally as hungry as a horse I don't think I can eat that much. It might appear that I have, but no, I don't think I can. That's a hyperbole. John 21, verse 25. And John said this, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. That statement is not to be understood in a literal sense. Because the specific itemization of all that Jesus did on this earth could be, could be contained in books. And especially if those books were stored on microfilm or in some digital format. So verse 25 contains hyperbole. Four is a euphemism. Euphemism is where a speaker substitutes a less direct and less offensive phrase for a stronger and more straightforward one. A euphemism is where someone substitutes a less direct or less offensive phrase for a stronger and more straightforward one. Judges 3 is a violent, violent text. Notice verse 24. 
when he, this was the Moabite king Eglon, Eglon was a pagan king, when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, meaning his servants came to look for him. And to the, their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, notice, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. That phrase, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber, is an euphemism. A euphemism for he's probably using the bathroom. He's probably relieving himself. Imagine some teenager using that at home. His mom says, Johnny, where's your brother? Gee, mom, I'm not sure. I think he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. Um, Number five, an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is where actual human characteristics are attributed to God. And this happens often. Isaiah 40, verse 12, notice. Who... This is God, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Let me expand on this. Kenneth Copeland is the founder, a founding father in this heretical movement called the Positive Confession Movement, also called the Word Faith Movement, and the Prosperity Gospel. Positive Confessionism teaches that faith is a force, Faith is not a force, but according to positive confessionism, faith is in and of itself a force. And we are to use that faith force to confess to God what we want from Him. And if we do that, then God is obligated to give us what we confessed in faith. So much so, some positive confession people believe we don't ask, but we demand because we're using our faith force requiring God to meet our need. And if we don't receive what we have wanted from God, then it is because our faith wasn't strong enough. It is our fault. Our faith force wasn't enough. That entire movement is a result of a bad hermeneutic. Mr. Copeland is a false teacher. He is a religious huckster and a con artist. He is also a pilot. He owns multiple expensive private jets. He keeps in his hangars next to his runway, located on his estate in Fort Worth. This is just, this is just his small house. And uh, the runway and hangars are off the picture. That's his home. Um, his net worth is estimated at $1 billion. Mr. Copeland is 85 and a half in age, and he has said God has told him he wouldn't die until he was 120. 120. Why would someone want to be that wrinkled? At that age, I would resemble an oversized prune. To demonstrate what a complete and utter total fraud this man is, I want us to watch a a video clip. Understand this was taped at the end of March 2020. March 2020. That was the beginning phase, beginning stages of the pandemic 26 months ago. I might add, this clip has been viewed 2.9 million times. Watch this. exercise judgment right now. Because we have... In the name of Jesus! Oh, thank you, Jesus. 
standing in the office of the prophet of God. I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. I execute judgment on you, Satan. You destroyer. You killer. You get out. You break your power. You get off this nation. I demand judgment on you. I demand. I demand. I demand a vaccination to come immediately. Yes. I call you done. I call you done gone. You come down from your In place of authority, destroyer. You come down and you crawl on your oh. belly like God commanded you when he put his foot on your head in the Garden of Eden. You will destroy through COVID-19. No more! No more. No more. It no more. is finished. finished. It is over. And the United States of America is healed and well Thank you. again. Saith the mighty Hallelujah. Spirit. Glory. So Kenneth Copeland used his faith force to demand that the virus be over, be judged, be defeated. He said it is finished, it is done, and that this nation is healed. That was 26 months ago. Has that happened as per his declaration? exercising his supposed dominion over the COVID virus. To date, in the United States, there have been 1,460,693,000 COVID deaths. On a global scale, to date, there have been 6,286,540 COVID deaths. This 99% of those statistics I just read happened after that rant happened after he declared that COVID is finished, COVID is defeated, COVID is done, and the United States is healed. I'm sorry, people, that's a farce. God had nothing to do with his foolishness. Going back to Isaiah 40, verse 12. It is apparent Kenneth Copeland doesn't understand that this particular verse we read from Isaiah contains anthropomorphism. Listen to his conclusions after reading this verse. He said, quote, The Bible said he, God, measured the heavens with a span. Now the span is the distance between the end of the thumb and the end of the little finger. The Bible said, and as a matter of fact, the Amplified Bible translates the Hebrew text that he measured out the heavens with a nine-inch span. I got a ruler, and I measured mine, and mine measures eight and three quarters of an inch long. And my dad, that's a smaller hand. So now, God's span is one-fourth of an inch longer than mine. So you see that faith didn't come billowing out of some giant monster somewhere. It came out of the heart of a being that is very uncanny, the way he is very much like you and me. He, God, is a being that stands somewhere around 6'2 or 6'3 that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred pounds or a little better and has a hand span of nine inches. 
The problem is, God doesn't have a hand span. Because John 4, verse 24 reads that God is a spirit being. God's Son, Jesus, has a hand span, but He is the only member of the triune Godhead that has bodily form. Mr. Copeland doesn't understand that this Isaiah passage we just read is an anthropomorphic statement that describes God in normal human characteristics so we can better understand Him. But God isn't 6'2 or 6'3, and God doesn't weigh 200 pounds. That's just a figure of speech called an anthropomorphism. In summation, sometimes the Bible does use symbolic language and figurative language. But we are to first interpret Scripture in a literal sense. And then if an illiteral interpretation seems inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, then we are to interpret a text in a non-literal sense. Remember this principle. If normal sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense or else we get nonsense. If normal sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense or else we get nonsense. Some atheists uh, could read that principle and feel that that criteria eliminates miracles because to them miracles aren't sensible. No, it doesn't eliminate miracles. If God exists, then miracles exist. And that's nonsensical. Let me demonstrate what happens if someone ignores the literal interpretation of Scripture. Genesis 5 contains genealogical records that date back to the first man, Adam. Verse 1, Genesis 5. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, some progressive liberal theologians interpret this section from Genesis 5 in a non-literal sense and teach that the actual ages of the people mentioned here in Genesis shouldn't be interpreted as stated because it's not reasonable that people were centuries old as per the Genesis record. For instance, in the United States, the average life expectancy for males in round numbers is 77. And the average life expectancy for females is 81. 77 men, ladies, 81. So women outlive men. And in most countries, that is true. Women do outlive men. I have a theory on that, but I wouldn't dare share it. Now, <laughs> because like modern life expectancies are relatively short, some believe that the pre-flood ages mentioned in Genesis are inflated numbers such as Methuselah, the oldest man on record. He died at 969. Imagine, 969. These non-literalists argue that's unreasonable. That's nonsensical. According to them, the actual ages in Genesis should be one-tenth the stated ages. One-tenth of the stated ages, according to them, is more reasonable. That means that the first man, Adam, didn't die at 9.30, as the text reads. He actually died at 93. Seth didn't die at 9.12. He died at just over 91. Enos didn't die at 9.05. He died at 90. Canaan didn't die at 9.10. He died at 91, and on and on and on. These people refuse to use the literal principle. And I disagree. I believe we should accept the ages as stated in the Genesis text in a normal, actual, literal sense. 
This Genesis 5 passage was before the global Genesis flood. The name for that pre-Genesis flood time period is called the antediluvian period. Time before the flood is the antediluvian period. And there's a logical, biblical, and scientific explanation for those extreme lifespans, which we don't have time to get into this morning. Um, But I want to demonstrate how nonsensical it is to reduce the age numbers in Genesis to one-tenth of the ages cited. Notice Genesis 5, verse 15. Mahaliel lived 65 years and begot Jared. A man named Mahaliel, at age 65 had a son named Jared. If we ignore the literal principle, and if we interpret his actual age as just one-tenth of that number, at the time a son was born to him, if 65 wasn't Mahaliel's actual age, that his actual age was just one-tenth of that number, then Mahaliel did something incredible because he fathered a child at age six and a half. So that's more reasonable? I don't think so. The principle is we first accept the Bible in a normal, literal sense, unless there is a reason in the text or in another text that would suggest we do otherwise. Let me mention some practical suggestions in using this literal principle. One, we should familiarize ourselves with the different figures of speech used in Scripture. The best book on this subject is entitled Figures of Speech Explained and Illustrated from E.W. Bullinger. Now, the reason I mention this book is not so you can go out and purchase it. It's kind of pricey. But because it demonstrates how frequent non-literal language is used in Scripture. In that particular book, get this, Bullinger catalogs 217 different figures of speech. Bullinger also mentions some 8,000 illustrations of their usage in Scripture. It's a massive book, 1,104 pages. Second, we should remember that each biblical symbol or figure of speech represents an actual reality. An actual reality. And if possible, we should determine what that reality is. Sometimes it is impossible. But we should attempt to determine what it is. Third, we should see if the immediate context identifies and interprets the symbol or figure of speech. Remember this principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So read the verses before the verse in question and then read the verses after the verse in question. Examine the entire context and see if the if that larger context identifies and interprets the verse. An example of that, Revelation 1, verse 12. John is on an island, a prison island named Patmos in the Aegean Sea. God permitted him to see the contents of Revelation, and he recorded that. Revelation 1, verse 12 mentions John seeing seven lampstands. Those seven lampstands were symbolic lampstands. In another eight more verses... The text gives us the interpretation of those lampstands. Those lampstands, according to John, represented seven actual first century churches from Asia Minor. Asia Minor is the western part of modern Turkey. So sometimes the answer to understanding a symbol or a figure of speech is in the immediate context itself. Fourth, if the immediate passage does not 
interpret the symbol or figure of speech, we should see if it is used or interpreted somewhere else in Scripture. Don't forget to compare Scripture to Scripture. Someone said the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Fifth, we should remember that some biblical symbols and figures of speech, such as parables, are incapable of dogmatic interpretation. Until I understood that, some parables would drive me out of my mind. Because we shouldn't force, attempt to force, a specific meaning to each part of a parable. Just doing that causes confusion. A parable is primarily emphasizing one basic lesson. So we shouldn't force each specific part of that parable to have some significant meaning or attachment. For the second half of this message, I want to address the misuse of this literal principle. The misuse of this principle. The big problem is that it is entirely possible to force a literal interpretation onto a passage that was intended to be understood in a symbolic or figurative sense. Some people call that letterism. I call that hyper-literalism. Hyper-literalism. Forcing a literal interpretation onto a biblical text that was intended to be understood in a symbolic or figurative sense. I don't know of a more profound instance of this problem than the teaching of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Catholicism teaches a doctrine called transubstantiation. This particular teaching is a core doctrine of the church. I contend, apart from transubstantiation, Catholicism doesn't even exist. And I need to mention up front, this is not intended to be critical of our Catholic friends. I have friends that are Catholic. Uh, I have had some extensive conversations with different Catholic priests and Catholic apologists, and all of those interactions have been respectful and positive. I've been treated with nothing less than respect, and, and we've had some you know, excellent dialogue. Uh, we understand our differences, and so it's been fine. So this is not, I'm not bashing uh, the Catholic faithful. This is not about Catholic people. This is about Catholic dogma and doctrine. As a congregation, we are conservative evangelical Christians. Catholics and evangelicals do agree on some, some doctrinal matters, such as we agree on the triune Godhead, that God is one being, exists in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we agree on Jesus' virgin birth. We agree on Jesus' sinless existence on the earth, his sacrificial death on a cross, and then Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And, and there are other areas of agreement. We agree on moral issues, such as abortion. Both, both Catholics and evangelicals are pro-life people. But there is also some serious, serious and substantial differences between us. And one of those differences is transubstantiation. Notice the definition. Transubstantiation means to change from one substance into another substance. It is an act where one substance is literally changed into another and different substance. For those of that never attended a Mass, um, and I would encourage you to do so sometime, um, 
select a mass different than our time. Um, but uh, there are two parts to the mass. The first part is the liturgy of the word. And this is where various biblical texts are read. Not explained, but read. Then there's, uh, second, there's the liturgy of the Eucharist. The liturgy of the Eucharist. The Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation teaches that at the Eucharist portion uh, of the Mass, an ordained priest blesses the elements. And in blessing the elements, he consecrates them. To consecrate those elements means to pronounce them as sacred. At that point, at the point of consecration, those elements change. Transubstantiation occurs. At that point, the wafer of bread changes into the actual human sacrificial flesh of Jesus. And the wine in the chalice changes into the actual human sacrificial blood of Jesus. Do you understand what I just said? Let me, uh, because people accuse me of misrepresenting uh, Catholicism, I would never intentionally misrepresent any group or any person. Let me read from this book entitled uh, Catholicism for Dummies. Um, as you know, there's an entire series, Dummies series, which I don't know if you know this, but it's actually published for me. And I have a number of different ones. Uh, I could quote from Catholic Catechism, but this is more understandable. Remember, this is, this is for dummies. On page 118, the second paragraph from this book, of the seven sacraments, the Holy Eucharist, communion, is the most central and important to Catholicism. So why is the Eucharist, why is communion the most important of the sacraments? Notice, because of its staunch, staunch meaning committed in attitude, this commitment, belief that the consecrated bread and wine are actually, really, truly, and substantially the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ. For Catholics, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is not just symbolic, allegorical, metaphorical, or merely spiritual. It's real. It's real. That's the reason it's called the real presence. Because Christ really is present in those communion elements. There's another book uh, from priest John O'Brien. He is now deceased, entitled The Faith of Millions. That book was first printed in 1933. At that time, the church numbered in the millions. Now the Catholic Church uh, numbers 1.3 billion members. It's advertised as a comprehensive treatment of the Roman Catholic religion. So much so, the church has said, this book is, quote, free of doctrinal and moral error. So the church has validated these statements. Notice, reading from this book, The Faith of Millions. When the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. I should repeat that. The priest, in consecrating the elements, brings Christ down from his throne, places him 
upon our altar to be offered up again as a sacrifice, as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of monarchs and emperors. It is greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Virgin Mary, the Blessed Virgin, was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven in a literal sense, renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times. Through the Eucharist, Christ, according to this reading, is being sacrificed on altars in Catholic churches at masses thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times around the globe. Now, don't miss this part. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, Christ the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. All right, so we understand this. So during the Eucharist, Jesus, as God, is subservient to the priest's instructions. And Jesus, as God, acts in obedience to the priest. There's a word to describe that idea. Blasphemous. Catholicism teaches that something miraculous occurs at Mass during the Eucharistic part of that service. That something is called transubstantiation. The priest blesses the Eucharistic elements. The bread, also called the host, the bread or host, and the wine, as Catholic use, Catholics use actual fermented wine, we use grape juice, uh, Catholics use actual fermented wine, from a common cup, meaning people drink from a common cup, called a chalice, that act of consecration from the priest causes the wafer of bread to be literally transformed into Jesus' sacrificial flesh and causes the wine to be literally transformed into Jesus' sacrificial blood. None of what I have said is an exaggeration. I am not guilty of misrepresentation. Again, Catholicism for Dummies, page 162. Sometimes Catholics refer to the chalice as only containing the wine. This terminology is wrong, disrespectful, and sacrilegious because it is no longer wine but the precious blood of Christ. And I'm curious how many people at St. Gaul's even know this. According to Catholicism, the Eucharistic participant is eating actual human flesh and drinking actual human blood. The flesh of Christ, the blood of Christ. Catholics sometimes, after hearing this, have said to me and protest, no, 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 pastor, you don't understand. No, the church doesn't teach that. I'm sorry. Yes, it does. The question as if the church teaches transubstantiation is not even debatable. If you don't believe me, go to St. Gaul's and visit with the parish priest. I understand he's a very nice gentleman, and I'm sure he'll be very upfront with you, and you ask him about transubstantiation, and he will tell you just what I told you, and then you can come back and say, I'm sorry, you were right. (laughs) Catholicism is a sacramental religion. There are seven sacraments in Catholicism. Baptism being the first, 
and uh, ba- Catholics baptize infants as soon as possible in order to put them into a state of grace. And um, ba- Catholics baptize not by immersion, but by sprinkling. After baptism, there's confirmation. Confirmation after completing catechism classes. Then there's communion, meaning the Eucharist. Then there's penance. Penance is assigned to someone after he confesses his sins to the priest. Then there's ordination or holy orders. Marriage is a sacrament in the church. And then number seven is anointing the sick. Uh, used to be called the last rites. Catholicism teaches that those sacraments are essential to salvation. Although marriage and ordination aren't applicable to all Catholics, some Catholics choose to remain single and unmarried, and so do not enter into that sacrament. And some Catholics, if not most, choose not to serve in an ordained position, such as being a deacon, and so don't participate in that sacrament. But the most critical sacrament, the most crucial and important sacrament, is the Eucharist. Attending Mass and receiving communion at that service is essential to a Catholic person's salvation. According to Catholicism, unless there's a justifiable reason to be excused, not attending Mass and not receiving communion is considered a mortal sin. Not a venial sin. Venial sins are less significant sins. A mortal sin. A mortal sin is a grave, serious sin that sends someone to damnation in hell unless someone repents from that sin. Because of that, the Eucharist is sometimes called the most blessed sacrament. I have a catechism book. Catholic catechism book that itemizes the supposed spiritual blessings resulting from sacramental communion. According to that catechism, the Eucharist does these things. One, it carries out the work of redemption. No. Two, it forgives sins. No. Three, it helps purify those souls in purgatory. Purgatory doesn't even exist. It wasn't even added to church dogma until the sixth century. Four, it increases the life of the grace received at baptism. Catholicism teaches that in being baptized, someone receives sanctifying grace, and then communion is said to increase that grace. Five, it cleanses past sins and sanctifies or preserves someone from committing future sins, even from committing mortal sins. And six, it pours out the grace of salvation upon all the church. People, there's a problem here. The Bible teaches none of these. None of these. This is church tradition. The point is, though, that the Eucharist is extremely important to someone that is Catholic. That is the reason Nancy Pelosi is so upset. Ms. Pelosi, for those that are uninformed, is the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. The Archbishop of San Francisco, her district is in San Francisco, she's from the West Coast, Um, The Archbishop of San Francisco is Salvatore Cotillion. Salvatore Cotillion is the Archbishop where she would normally worship if she's home. And he has just informed Miss Pelosi that she would be prevented from receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion until, I'm quoting him, until such time as you publicly repudiate your advocacy for the legitimacy of abortion and confess and receive absolution of this grave sin in the sacrament 
of penance. I hope the good archbishop is not holding his breath because that is not going to happen. I've seen him interviewed. He seems very sincere. He said he has wrestled with this for not months but years. But it wasn't until Miss Pelosi recently said she wanted to codify into law Roe versus Wade, and he felt like that was, that was too much. And so he informed her that she would not be allowed to receive the Eucharist at Mass. Now, we disagree radically on communion, but I congratulate the Archbishop. That was a courageous act on his part. According to church canon law, he is required to do that. He's not out of bounds according to church dogma. Miss Pelosi describes herself as a devout Catholic, and she fully understands the church's teaching against abortion. The church has had a long standing for centuries that is a, a position that is pro-life and against abortion. And she's aware of that. But she is still a determined pro-abortion on demand advocate. She is been infuriated of late. She has condemned the recent draft of a Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade. She wants her cake and eat it too. She wants to be pro-abortion. She doesn't want to go against the left. She wants to be pro-abortion and ignore the church's moral teachings, but at the same time, she wants to receive the Eucharist at Mass, since she understands according to Catholic theology, how essential that is to her own salvation. Since that announcement from the Archbishop, she has already defied his demand. She's already received communion at a church in Georgetown, more than 3,000 miles from the San Francisco Diocese. Why? Because most priests, unlike the Archbishop, most priests are afraid of political pushback. But I contend the Archbishop uh, is acting consistent with his church's teachings. I don't think there's any question. Someone after the first service uh, left an anonymous note on my, my desk. I just love anonymous notes. <laughs> What's up with all the politics talk up on the pulpit today? Sharing your political opinions and views up on the pulpit is just wrong. Explanation point, explanation point, underlined twice. It is insulting to those of us who disagree with you, and our pastor should not and be and is not our political guidance counselor. Well, I know I'm not. Actually, this book should be. But this person missed the whole point. I'm not, my point is not... Nancy Pelosi, she's a political figure. But the point is, I'm emphasizing that the moral teaching of the church is anti-abortion. That's a moral issue. It's been dragged into the political arena. It's been a part of the church for centuries. But now it's the hot button in the political arena. And I'm just saying that she wants to be able to take communion because it is essential to her own salvation, but she doesn't want to give up her pro-abortion stance. That's the point. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I will do that after the service if you want to know. Where was I? 
Transubstantiation is taken from the different gospel accounts of the final meal. Jesus and his disciples ate together just hours before he was arrested. It was at that Passover supper where Jesus instituted the practice known as communion or the Eucharist. Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. Each time we commemorate communion uh, at a service, I read these verses. Notice verse 26, and as they were eating meaning Jesus and his disciples were together eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, notice, this is my body. Verse 27, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, For this, meaning the wine in the cup, is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or forgiveness of sins. I heard another Catholic archbishop defend transubstantiation from these same verses after he reaffirmed the findings from the church council at Vatican II. He said this, quote, We still interpret those statements from Jesus in a literal sense. People, that's the problem. That's hyperliteralism. Catholicism has interpreted these verses and other communion verses in a literal sense when Jesus intended for them to be understood in a figurative sense. Jesus was using metaphorical language in these verses. Jesus meant that the bread represented his sacrificial flesh and the wine represented his sacrificial blood. The bread and wine or juice are symbols Symbols that represent Christ's sacrificial flesh and his sacrificial blood. Symbols. We are not to understand these verses in a literal sense. I'm going to mention six statements in wrapping this up that demonstrate Jesus did not intend his communion statements to be understood in a literal sense. One, Jesus sometimes referred to himself in figurative language. He sometimes referred to himself in figurative language, so this wasn't unusual. John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus didn't mean he was an actual, material, tangible, dense, knock-on-wood door. He meant he is the entrance into salvation. John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. I am the vine. Jesus didn't mean he was some plant jutting up out of the ground. No, he meant he is our spiritual source. Mark 10, verse 12, Jesus said he was the cornerstone. Jesus didn't mean he was an actual piece of gigantic granite that a building would be constructed on. No, he meant he is the spiritual foundation to the church. So this passage from Matthew 26 and other related passages are just instances of Jesus using figurative language. Second, Those elements did not become Jesus' sacrificial flesh and blood because this was before his actual sacrifice on the cross. His crucifixion wasn't scheduled until the next morning. How could those elements at that meal become a sacrificial flesh and sacrificial blood if that meal happened before his actual sacrifice on the cross? And that first communion was not a pre-sacrifice because there was no such thing as a pre-sacrifice. Jesus remained present and fully anatomically intact at that supper. Jesus could not have been both 
at that dinner table and on that dinner table. Not a single minuscule part of him changed into something else. Number three, even after Jesus blessed the cup, he still referred to it as the fruit of the vine, as if a change had never happened. Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus said, But I say to you, I will not drink of, notice, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If Jesus had changed, literally changed, this cup of wine into his actual blood, then he should have called it his blood and not the fruit of the vine. But he didn't do that. He referred to it as what it still was, and it was still wine. Four, the primary intention of communion is to remember remember the sacrificial death of Jesus. But how can we remember his death if he is still experiencing his death through transubstantiation at Mass? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Jesus said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To remember something means to, in a mental sense, recall something that has happened in the past. Not recall something that is happening in the present because that's not possible. Something has to be in the past before we can remember it. If Jesus is being sacrificed through transubstantiation in the present, then there's nothing to remember because it's happening in the now. Number five, it is a scientific fact that the communion elements do not change. If someone were to, after Mass sneak around, confiscate the communion elements, elements that had been blessed and consecrated from the priest, and were to confiscate the bread and the wine, and then rush them to a lab immediately after Mass, a chemical analysis would demonstrate that those elements had not changed either in external form or internal substance. The bread is still bread, and the wine is still wine. Literally nothing has changed. Now, Catholicism argues that even though the bread is transformed into Christ's sacrificial flesh, according to them, it still retains the appearance and odor and taste of bread. Listen to this argument. The church insists that the bread turns into Christ's actual human flesh, but the church admits, from a visual perspective, it seems to still be bread. It still smells like bread. It still tastes like bread. And the lab results would substantiate that it's still bread. The Catholic Church will admit to all of those characteristics about the bread are true, but it still insists. It insists that the bread is now human flesh. People, that's nonsense. It's either bread or it's human flesh. But contrary to Catholicism, it cannot be both bread and human flesh. That is an illogical fallacy. Number six. The Mass cannot be a re-sacrifice of Christ. Catholics sometimes use the word representation, A representation of his original sacrifice. To me, that's semantical nonsense. A representation of that original sacrifice is a re-sacrifice. The Mass cannot be a re-sacrifice of Christ because His sacrifice for sin was finished on the cross. 
The argument some Catholics use is that the Eucharist is not another sacrifice, not a re-sacrifice, but a continuation of the same sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. That's not possible because Jesus said his sacrifice was finished. Remember hanging on the cross, John 19 verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, meaning he died. Hebrews 10, 12, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, notice that phrase, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, that phrase indicates the finality of Jesus' death on the cross. There is no re-sacrifice. There is no continuation of that one sacrifice. There is no representation of that sacrifice. The fact Jesus died on the cross for our sins was a historical, once and for all time, non-repeatable occurrence. Meaning that transubstantiation doesn't exist. I want you to listen to this very carefully. I don't mean to be insulting. I don't mean to be disrespectful. But this, I believe, is a candid understanding of this teaching. Catholics should be grateful that contrary to church dogma and doctrine, Eucharistic transubstantiation doesn't actually exist. The Catholic faithful should be grateful for that. Because if, if the wafer of bread did become actual human flesh, and if the wine in the chalice did become actual human blood, then Mass would be an exercise in cannibalism. One reason I use the Catholic Eucharist to illustrate hyperlegalism is because Catholicism insists that the Eucharist is salvific. It is salvific, meaning it contributes to someone's salvation. Evangelical Christianity, that's us, teaches that salvation is obtained from God through faith alone and Christ alone. Sola fide, sola Christus. Faith alone in Christ alone. Whereas Catholicism teaches that salvation is obtained and then maintained through a combination of faith in Christ plus, plus the Catholic sacraments. That difference is enormous. In 1547, the Catholic Council of Trent said this. This is from Canon 4. If anyone says that the sacraments, meaning the seven sacraments of the church, are not necessary for salvation, I'm one of those that say that, and that without the desire of them, meaning without the desire for partaking in the sacraments, men obtain from God through faith alone the grace of justification. That's, that's also me. Then that person, let him be anathema. So evangelicals, as ourselves, are declared anathema, according to the Catholic Council of Trent. Anathema means accursed. Anathema means cursed to damnation in hell. That particular Catholic Council said that a divine curse is on someone that teaches that salvation is received through Christ alone apart from the sacraments. That statement has never been retracted, not even at Vatican II. 
In more recent times, the church has undergone some cosmetic changes, and we can see those changes, but Catholicism is still a sacerdotal performance-based religion that teaches there is no salvation apart from the sacraments. And that teaching, that doctrine exists because Catholic tradition has forced a literal interpretation and a literal meaning on a certain biblical text that were intended to be understood in a symbolic or figurative sense. That is misusing the literal principle. Remember, if normal sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense, or else we get nonsense. Let's bow our heads. Father, you know my heart, even if no one else does. I'm not here to be critical of our friends across the parking lot. There's some good people over there, and we have a good relationship with them. But unfortunately, their church's teaching is less than biblical. And I I sincerely doubt that their people even understand half of what I said today. They've never been taught, and it's unfortunate. I know they're sincere. I'm sure they're sincere. God, I pray that you would open their eyes. Their eyes have been blinded to the truth of the gospel. Pray that you would open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is obtained from you by grace, because of your grace, giving us what we don't deserve through faith, trusting in your son Jesus alone. God, I would pray that for anyone in this room who's never experienced Christ. Maybe they're religious, but they don't have Jesus. They've never, ever, ever exercised their faith and put their trust in Jesus for salvation. God, I pray that they would do that as soon as possible. I would pray that even after this service, they would approach me and say, Pastor, we need to talk. I want to make an appointment. We've got to talk. I want Jesus. I want to know I am forgiven. I hope that would happen. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would convict hearts here today. Thank you again for your word. I've been faithful the best I could be to, to, to explain it. I hope it's made sense. I hope it's helped us see things a little differently and um, make a difference in each of us. And I thank you and I pray and ask it all in the name of your very, very special son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.